Well, I am certainly glad to be with everyone here. <clears throat> Get my uh, situation under control here. Um, so today, what are we doing here? Um, well, we're first, if we know that sometimes people come out um, to a Christmas, or maybe the week before, or, or Christmas Eve message that um, normally don't maybe don't go to church, and so if, if that's you today, that defines you, then I just want to tell you you're welcome here. We're, we're grateful that you're here. Um, yes. Oh, wow. Um, you know, typically what we do on Sunday mornings is it's, you know, kind of one Christian speaking to other Christians, inviting the Holy Spirit to teach us together from his word. And, um, and so that's what we typically do on Sunday. And we typically do it by going verse by verse through the Bible. And we've been in the book of Acts. That's been Awesome. Maybe we'll finish next Christmas. It'll be great. <laughs> Easy. He's like staring. He's like staring me down right now. Uh, um, but it's been really good for me personally. I don't know what it's been like for you, but it's been really good for me personally to be going through the Book of Acts. Um, you know, the Lord's been dealing with me in a certain area. Uh, I've had this sickness that I felt. Um, it's been kind of the symptoms of it have been kind of rising up more and more. Um, I started to notice it just a few months ago when I kind of started to feel like I didn't have any joy anymore. Like, like the joy that I kind of used to know, the joy of that Lord, the deep-seated joy, you know, I used to have that. And I felt like it was missing from my life. And I started to do some like self-diagnosis. You know, what's going on here? Why, where did my joy go? You know, is it this, this, uh, this pandemic? You know, that's one blame, one thing you could blame. Uh, is it gas prices? Those things are skyrocketing. Um, you know, Christmas consumerism. You know, what is it? Is it more personal? Is something going on in my life? You know, it's it just like there. And we, we all, we know what we're talking about, right? You know, lack of joy, or, or, or might we say discontentment, you know, it can live in really small things. Like, uh, you know, I, I, I wanted to go to that Christmas party, but I had, I had already said yes to this other thing that I don't even want to do anymore. You know, I was like holding out for a better option, and now, uh, you know, I think discontentment can live in like online dating. You know, just swipe, no, no, no. Uh, you know, discontentment can live in big things, too. Like, there's this term that's going around called the Great Resignation, that in 2020 and 2021, there's this mass exodus from the job market because people don't find fulfillment in their job, and they just think that, you know, I'm just, I'm just going to leave because they're supported outside of the job market. And so, like, it lives in, discontentment can live in really tiny things, day-to-day -day things, and it can live in, on a large scale as well. You know, we think about the picture as Christmas comes up as the child. I know none of you are this child, but the child that just starts ripping through presents. You know, and, oh, great. Oh, oh thanks. My turn? Is it my turn? Is it my turn? You know, and then by the end of the day, they, they don't even remember what they got. Like, they, don't, they have no clue what just transpired. And they're on to, uh, I guess, what's next? Valentine's Day? Something, you know, like... You know, so that, that idea, like, we, we're just really aware 
or I, I think it's subtle, but I think we can, if we take some time, we can become really aware that discontentment lives kind of invasively throughout our whole experience. And uh, it's, it was, like I said, it was this sickness that was uh, taking over uh, my, my mind, my heart, my body. And the irony of it is that we were going through the, we're being going through the book of Acts, and, you know, specifically Paul, and we've already started to see some of these, these hard circumstances that Paul was going through as he looked to follow the Lord in, this, in these recorded, uh, you know, accounts that we have in the book of Acts. And the Lord really started to do work on my heart to say, like, man, these circumstances that he was going through are much harder than the little things that I go through on a day-to-day basis. And, and so I started to ask the Lord, what is this? What, what is, where is that contentment that he's getting? Where is that joy that he's getting that despite the circumstances around him, he can still have contentment? You know, it's, and then Christmas comes along and then it becomes ironic because this season that I'm having of discontentment is kind of starting to ride right along this Christmas celebration of the incarnation of Jesus Christ, which I think what our hope is today is to look at this doctrine that has implications for a supernatural contentment. Fun Christmas message, right? Yeah, we're having fun. So what we're going to do today is consider the incarnation of Christ. It's the truth which we celebrate at Christmas. And for me, it was the exact right medicine that I needed for this sickness. The exact right medicine that I needed to, to um, deal with this sickness of discontentment. The incarnation of Jesus Christ is essential. Essential means you can't live without it. The Christian faith cannot live without the incarnation of Jesus Christ. It's essential. But it's a fancy word. We don't usually speak in Latin around here. Um, But the incarnation is a word, a Latin word, that means in the flesh. You can hear carnal, carnation, you hear that? So carnal, flesh. So in the flesh, the idea that Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, became man. That Jesus would be given an additional name to the name Jesus, Emmanuel, which means... God with us. John 1.14 says, The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Something that most of you are familiar with. Galatians 4.4 says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law. And this truth about the incarnation, this doctrine that we're going to kind of discuss today, it's deep. (laughs) It's really deep. Volumes have been written about the truth of it. And so please don't walk away thinking the only thing that I talked about encompasses all of the doctrine of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. We are not going to be able to touch on everything. And so Yes, the encouragement is there to go study on your own more about uh, what this means, but we are going to talk about a specific, one specific aspect of the incarnation, 
And we're going to kind of use that bridge from our time in Acts, and we're going to use it, and we're going to bridge over to this message about Christmas through the Apostle Paul, because I think it has major implications for our life. So, what are some of the, you know, what are some of these hard circumstances that Paul went through in his life? We've already encountered a couple. Maybe your mind's already jogging. I hope your mind's already jogging as you think back. But even like a, just a, within a few weeks, we talked about John Mark leaving Paul and Barnabas, kind of abandoning, the, abandoning them on the mission trip, and the effect that that would have had on the group, on Paul personally, right? We can see the abandonment of John Mark would be a hard circumstance that Paul went through. Or being stoned at Lystra would be a hard circumstance. Getting stones thrown at you to the point of near death. Right? These are some of the things that we've already discussed, but the, the New Testament is actually full of other ones as well. We're going to read about more as we continue in Acts, but there's also in the letters, you can kind of see, okay, this, is, this was actually hard for me sharing about how hard it was for him. So we're going to look at some categories, and as we look at these categories of difficult circumstances, I'm imagining that you're going to start to be locked into one of them that is particularly hard for you as well. And so one of them, financial problems. See, Paul came from a well-to-do situation. All right, that's clear from the scripture. But look in, or we're going to look up there because we're going to do a lot of flipping and turning and stuff. So you just look up at the screen. But in 2 Corinthians 11.27, it says, this is Paul writing, and he says, In toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, or another word would be naked. Paul's telling the people that he's writing to about his own experiences here. And he's saying that there was times as I walked with the Lord that I experienced hunger. Now, many in this room have never experienced hunger. And some in this room have experienced hunger that he's talking about. This is, a, this is an experience that not only goes with hunger and thirst, but the lack of money to pay for more. Okay. The, the idea that he takes out his money bag and, you know, it's just a skin of leather. There's nothing in it. That they wouldn't have a place to go, to stay, so they had to stay in the cold. Their clothes would be ragged, so they'd sleep exposed. Paul experienced, the Apostle Paul experienced financial problems, I'm sure. Maybe not to the same degree, but... There are people in this room that can identify, that say, yeah, I know what it's like to experience financial problems. Physical illness, physical illness and injury. Paul experienced, many times you could see Paul experienced physical illness and injury. One we talked about, getting stoned. You're going to have physical illness and injury from that. But it also seemed like Paul had something that was more chronic. He talks about this bodily ailment. In Galatians, you know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first, 
And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God. So he's like, you know, the Galatian church did something good with it. They still received him, but there was something going on here with Paul that was more like a, like a, like a physical illness, not an injury. And there's, I know some of you that are dealing with cancer or uh, something that maybe you were like born with, like a, like a diabetes that is always there. It just never goes away. Think about the way Paul talked about this thorn that was given him in the flesh. Now, it could be something else, but many people think it was something medical. And he talks about it in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. It says, So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. And he goes on to say that he asked for it to be removed, and it wasn't. And so there is something going on from a physical, the, the physical bodysuit that Paul wore was betraying him often. And I know that we experience that as well. And discontentment can come in through that door. Number three, this is the third category. Opposition and persecution from unbelievers. This shouldn't come as a surprise to us, but we do see it often. Acts 14, 19 says, But the Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city. That's the thing that we've been referencing often, supposing that he was dead. So there was opposition to his message. 2 Corinthians 1, 8. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experience in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. That's, you, can feel, you can start to feel those words of what it meant to constantly be resisted by the ones that you are trying to uh, offer this message of hope to. Acts 16, 19 to 24, this is a little bit longer passage. We're, we're about to get into this on Sunday mornings. But when the, her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us, lawful for us as Romans to accept our practice. And the crowd joined in in attacking them. And the magistrates tore the garments off of them and gave orders to beat them with rods and throw them into prison. That as Paul went out to preach the gospel, there was opposition to that. And that's not just a physical opposition. That's also like a rejection of who he is as a person. And so he has to deal with that. But fourth... This fourth category, I don't know, this, this might be the most painful one. And that's rejection from believers. Paul experienced those that he ministered to, that even joined him in the ministry, pulling away from him, pulling away from the gospel. And this seems like it was particularly hard for Paul. Second Timothy for 16 to 17, uh, it's not going to be up there, but just listen to it. 
He says, at my first offense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. Acts 13, 13 says, now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. That's the John Mark example, that John left them and abandoned them in the ministry. 2 Timothy 4, For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me. Philippians 4.15, And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me. They left me on my own. 2 Timothy 1.15, You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among who are Phygelius and Hermogenes, thank you. And again, feel the words here. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Paul's saying, we have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart, it's wide open to you. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak as to children, widen your hearts also. As Paul ministered to the church, there was people that would just leave. And as Paul says in 2 Corinthians, that anxiety for the churches seemed to wear on him uh, pretty, pretty deeply. So by this point, we talked about financial, we talked about physical illnesses, we talked about you know, rejection from uh, unbelievers, and we talked about um, even rejection or distance from, um, from believers. I'm imagining that maybe 80% of you here are like, yeah, okay, that one that he talked about, I, I, felt, I felt that in my life. I felt that, right, 80% of us. But maybe we keep going and grab all 100%, okay? How about this one? An unmet, enduring desire that hasn't been fulfilled. Now, that could be singleness. Some have singleness and it's a gift for the church, it's for the gospel, it's a gift for the kingdom, and they're content in it. But some are going through singleness and not content at all. There's an unmet, enduring desire that's there. Or to, excuse me, Um, to have a family. I think everyone's on board now. Everyone's experienced one of these things that is a vehicle for discontentment to come in and, and uh, be a cancer through our spirit, through our heart. Despite all that we have recorded for us about Paul, all these things, the Apostle we're not going to lift him up. Paul, the Apostle Paul was human, okay? But despite all of these things we have recorded for us in a letter to the Philippian church, I want you to turn your Bibles to the, uh, to the book of the letter of, of the Philippians, the letter to the Philippians, letter to the Philippians. Towards the end of your Bible, if you get to First and Second Corinthians, keep going a little bit further. You're going to Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, no, yeah, yep, that's right, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. So Philippians chapter 4, 
This is exactly where we are in the book of Acts, by the way. Paul is making his way into Philippi to, is that, is it Philippi? Yes, Philippi. It sounded wrong when it came out. He's making his way in there, and he's going to plant this church, and this is the church that he's writing to in the letter to the Philippians. And it's towards the end of his life. He's probably writing this letter from imprisonment in Rome. Okay, he's made his way to Rome because of the, the gospel and the people that don't like him sharing the gospel. And he had to um, kind of cry out to be judged by Caesar. And so he, he's in Rome now and he's under guard. And he's writing this letter to them after all these things that we talked about have transpired. And these are astonishing words right here. And this is where we're going to settle in for the rest of the time. Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 to 13. Look down with me and read with me. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Now that I am not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And this is mind-boggling. See, the sickness of discontentment, it feels like it's like a cancer. It just, it's invasive. It comes in and then it just festers and spreads into all areas. I have trouble being content in any circumstance, let alone every circumstance. But yet, after all these circumstances, which is over the course of years, a lifetime that Paul had, he came on the other side of all of it and he said, here's what I learned. I learned that no matter what, to be content. So how do you define contentment then? A lot of the contemporary English translations or or definitions use the word satisfaction or satisfied. I think that's a pretty good one. Like, ah, like you haven't eaten in a while (laughs) and you get a good meal and you sit back and, ah, satisfaction being fulfilled or, or untroubled or at peace. Like these are, these are pretty good definitions. I feel like it's, um, you don't have to really build on that, but the Greek word is a little bit different here. I had to go to my, the only person I know that knows how to read Greek and ask him, am I reading this right? Is this exactly what I'm reading? Because it feels like it's a word that you're not supposed to use in the Christian language because it's self-satisfaction or self-sufficiency. That's the word. When it says, I have learned to be, in whatever situation I am to be content, that word for content is self-sufficient. And we're like, whoa, we're not supposed to say self-sufficient. Like that's, no, no. You're not allowed to be self-sufficient because that's what the world teaches, right? The world teaches you can be self You can make your own path. You can do whatever you want. You've got to make your way. You can do it all on your own. And so, so we have a problem here where we see this teaching of the world and it comes into our verse and we're like, what was Paul talking about? Did Paul really mean to be self-sufficient in and of himself? No, 
You guys, that was an obvious one. Paul is so grounded in his unity with Christ that since he is in Christ, he needs nothing else. He's not talking about self-sufficiency in the way the world teaches it. He's talking about being self-sufficient in Christ's sufficiency because he dwells within him. He's taken over the inside. You know, I think about contentment and, um, you know, that, that kind of, that idea of just being satisfied. And then I think about God, the triune God, the, the one that is, you know, one God, but three persons, the Father and the Son and the Spirit. And, and it's, they've been that way for, for eternity, from eternity past. And they need nothing. They are, God himself is the idea of self-sufficiency. We, we talk about being self-sufficient, but it's not, it's not a true self-sufficiency. Even the world, the way it teaches it, is not true self-sufficiency. We still depend on other things to make us that way. God depends on nothing else. He is completely self-sufficient. And this idea of incarnation that God would come down and dwell among us, that by coming down and dwelling among us, he would prove that he wants to actually be within us and then offer us that, a piece of that self-sufficiency that he has within himself. I was um, cutting a tree. Uh, I was, uh, I, uh, there was a tree that was cut down by my house, and I I asked Josh to come and help me, you know, get it back to my house so I could have some firewood. And I was splitting it the other day, a couple weeks ago. And that the, the part of the tree that's like, you know, kind of the straight part that's like most of the trunk, that stuff's like really easy to split. I don't know if you've ever split any wood in your days, but it's just like throwing a pretty light axe at it and it'll just boom, pop apart. But when you get down to that lower trunk, that is a nightmare, right? The, where, the, where the trunk meets the roots is so hard to split apart. It feels like the grain is just interwoven like a spider web. And uh, we were using his two-ton log splitter, and it was having trouble with it, right? And so the idea here is that when we talk about being in Christ, like that he dwells within us, there's this idea that he is the root system. He's what provides life to the tree, right? You guys have heard this language before. And when you, where that meets, it's next to impossible. And maybe for many of us, impossible for us to to make that split easily. Where the roots meet the trunk, where Christ meets us, there's a connection there that's impossible to separate. And I think this is where contentment, where as the Lord was teaching me about Paul's contentment, this is where it starts to live in that connection, that unity that we have with Christ that's defended by the idea that he came down from heaven into the flesh. Jeremy Burroughs, 
who's a really, 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 really old guy, wrote this definition for contentment in his book, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. I'll read it. That was a lot. I'll read it one more time. Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. And I think, my mind is so wicked. I think, I could even rationalize that. Well, it was Paul, wasn't it? He's the Apostle Paul. Shouldn't we expect the Apostle Paul to be content in any and every circumstance? But, Look back at the verse. Look in Philippians chapter 4. What's it say? Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have what? Learned. See, this wasn't, this, I, this characteristic, this attribute, this, this gift of contentment didn't, it didn't it hit him when the light blinded him on the road to Damascus. It didn't come with this also this also imputation of contentment. There was a school that he went through. Now he learned some knowledge. There was an acquisition of knowledge as he, as he took this idea that Christ came down to the flesh. But then he went through this school to learn how that, how that has implications for the way he goes through things, through the way he goes through the day-to-day. He wasn't born with it. It wasn't like a superpower, like he was bitten by some radioactive spider or something like that. He didn't even learn from the feet of his great mentor, Gamaliel. Is that right? Did I say it right? Well, Gamaliel. But you guys know who I'm talking about, right? Paul's mentor. It wasn't something he learned at his feet. The word for learned in the Greek actually is very specific that it implies an experiential type of learning. See, when I was in athletic training, I felt like I had a great education at West Virginia. Like, while, you know, pre-med is all like biology and chemistry and organic chem and miserable things like that, <laughs> you know, athletic training, the, 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 the school that I was at with athletic training was heavily practical related so we learned the book things but in every semester we had a class called practicum where we had to go to class and we didn't learn anything in the book we just had to apply all the book stuff to each other and test each other and sometimes people got hurt and it's okay but from from the time i was a freshman to the time i graduated there was not a week that went by that i wasn't being asked to prove that I knew what the book said and I knew how to apply it to the athletes that I was dealing with. Not one week. And so by the time you leave school like that, you feel like you've had some experience already. You feel ready to do the job. When I went to my next job after that, I felt ready to be an athletic trainer. A lot of people that come out of college don't feel ready to do the thing that they were told to do in college. Like, And so I felt this is the type of learning that we're talking about in Philippians. When he says, I learned, 
It's not I acquired knowledge about it. I studied the scripture about it. It's I took what I knew and I applied it to the situations that I was in. That's the type of learning that we're talking about. It reminds us of the words that we sung this morning. I don't know if you know the story about this, the hymn, It Is Well With My Soul or When Peace Like a River. But John, can you throw up that, um, that first verse, When Peace Like a River Attendeth My Soul? Maybe. Well, I'll just sing it for you. It's going to get ugly. So, remember his words, plenty and hunger. When peace like a river attendeth my way, that's the good part. When sorrows like sea billows roll, that's the bad part. Next verse, next line. Whatever my lot, thou hast, what? Taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. I don't know if you know the story about Horatio Spafford, the writer of this, but make a note. Look it up. You can see that he really meant these words. So, Paul, we've been talking about, he was taught this. It wasn't just given it to him. He didn't just like one day wake up with it. He went through the school of contentment, through all these circumstances, and at the end of it, this is what, he, you know, his, his, his treaties, his, his dissertation on it is about contentment. I think it all comes through the incarnation of Jesus Christ. That the Father would send the Holy Spirit who would become upon a virgin, Mary, who would conceive and bear a son, and the eternal word would become flesh. Here's the key. Joining the divine God with the human and his name would be Emmanuel. Again, that name, God with us. This stooping down that God did, that Jesus did, lowering himself, this humility to leave the glory of heaven to be for a time lower than the angels, this emptying of himself and taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of man. This is what gives Paul contentment in any and every circumstance. Because did Paul experience that empty money bag? Yeah. But Jesus left the riches of heaven to not have a place to lay his head. Did Paul experience the physical pain that we were talking about? Yes, he did. And Jesus, maybe too graphic for Christmas week, experienced physical pain that we have no clue about. Did Paul experience this searing rejection of those he ministered to, to those he even walked with and taught and poured himself out for? Yes. Judas was a primary instrument of God going to the cross. It says that all would scatter when Jesus went to the cross. So when Paul goes through these instances that we're talking about, all those categories, when Paul's going through them, he's applying that Jesus came down from heaven and took on weakness of flesh and then went through every experience that Paul would go through 
And he did it with perfect obedience to God. So that when he got to heaven, when, when Jesus is resurrected and goes back and ascends back to heaven, and he intercedes for us, he intercedes as a high priest that is sympathizing with our weakness. Because he also went through it. And Paul knows that the, that God-man that's now interceding for me in heaven, that God-man, he dwells within me. He is with me, stood by me, as he says in Acts. And he doesn't need anyone else. He doesn't need anything else. He doesn't need the circumstances to be a particular way because he has the sufficiency of God dwelling within him. This is where biblical change and transformation happens. When you take the scripture and you apply it to your life. I'm trying to figure out where I'm at right now. I imagine many of you came expecting to hear about a manger. <laughs> you know, angels, um, you know, declaring the birth of Christ. These things are part of the, you know, these things are part of the Christmas story. So come on Christmas Eve. That's what they're going to talk about it. All right, come on Christmas Eve. Four o'clock, it's going to be great. We're going to talk about the Christmas story. But the Christmas message, that's not the Christmas story. They're not the same. The Christmas message is that God would become flesh. You know, when sin, this is a story of old. This isn't like the New Testament popped out of nowhere. The Christmas message begins back at the Garden of Eden, where heaven and earth, the divine and the, the created, met. They were, that God walked with man. There was fellowship. There was, uh, the, the door was open, so to speak, between heaven and the created, the divine and the created, the heaven and earth. But sin and rebellion, we know the story, right? It comes in and then there's a chasm. Now, no longer do heaven and earth meet. The door is closed. But we see glimpses throughout the Old Testament Little tiny glimpses of the door being cracked open. We think about Moses, you know, interacting with the bush and, or, or going up the mountain and coming, coming down glowing. We think about Jacob, the Jacob's ladder. That's a big theme, right? Angels descending and ascending. We see little glimpses throughout. Think about Isaiah's vision of the throne room of God. Like small circumstances, small scale. The incarnation, the Christmas message, the incarnation of Christ is that door getting kicked open. That God is saying that no longer that this, there's going to be a chasm. I'm going to come down. I'm going to make a way for that, for that what was lost at the Garden of Eden to be recreated, renewed, the same distance that God, that God had from Adam and Eve after sin and rebellion, that, that chasm that started, that's the same distance that a discontented heart experiences. See, it's not circumstances that determine the peace that we have within. It's not the circumstances. It's not the, not the things outward, the external. It's the idea that how far or near 
are we to Christ? How far or near are we to our creator, to the one who loves us, that is willing to do, leave the glory of heaven, to come and be a man, to go to the cross? So, things to take away. Well, I think one is just more diagnostic. I imagine somewhere along the way today, something about discontentment or or a type of discontentment rung true with you. Maybe one of those things that Paul was going through sounded like the more painful thing. That's probably where your discontentment lives too. Somewhere in there. So is it financial? Is it rejection? Is it... uh, uh, is it um, like, like a physical illness, like a, like a circumstantial physical illness? If one of those sounds pricks your heart a little bit more, you can just kind of diagnose, that's probably, I should ask the Lord, because that's probably where my discontentment lives. That's probably where, that's probably the area of my life that I don't feel the incarnation of Christ. I don't know him there. I'm going to ask him to come there. You know, if only statements are great for diagnosing. If, if only this were true, then I would be content. Right? That's another way to, if you're, if you're unsure, you know, where does that live in my life? Ask yourself, what's the if only statement that would mean that you could be content? That's probably where it lives. That's one thing. Diagnosis. Using, using this time to diagnose where our discontentment can live. But then the other thing is taking time to meditate this week on what God left, what Jesus left to come and dwell among us. What sacrifice he made to come and dwell among us. What does it prove about his love for us that he would Leave heaven, leave glory, and take on the weakness of human flesh. And just taking time to meditate on it, because if he's willing to do that, is he willing to join you in your life, to stand by you as circumstances arise that could steal your contentment? I think he is. But as my friend Kyle and I were talking, it only, it only, you can only see it if the, if, the, if, the, if the chasm's big enough in your mind. You can only see it if the, if the contrast is there. So we can only know his great love for us when we know what he gave up for it. We can only know his great love for us when we consider who we are and how quickly we give ourselves over to the created. And so just taking time to meditate on that that this week as we get closer to Christmas. Yes, the first coming is meant to make us think about the second coming. And there's so many more things about the incarnation, why it had to happen this way. But I I think for me, it's been the right medicine as as I've considered my own discontentment. That I just know because that he, he took on flesh, 
He's, he proved that through that act that he wants to dwell with man. And by faith, he, he dwells with me. And I, it's been so good for me, so good for me personally. And so let's pray. Let's invite the worship team back up. And let's, uh, let's take some time today afterwards with the cookies and having fun. But if you want someone to pray with you, you know, just about where you're at, your, your own contentment or discontentment, or praise the Lord with you for the things that he's doing and you can see him doing, then let's just not make it just about cookies, right? Cookies are delicious. I'm going to get my fair share. But interact with each other like the church, right? Father, we are grateful for... Um, your word that gives us insight into who you are. Uh, but we know that it's not by your word that we have life. It's by you. It's by being uh, connected to you in the, in the way a tree abides in the roots. And so... Lord, for those of us that just need you in a greater fashion this morning, need you to meet us in a way that is uh, fresh, uh, we need an extra measure of your spirit, as the word uses, we ask for you to do that, to, that we could even sense that incarnational ministry. You with us, God with us, Emmanuel. And it would be personal. And so, Lord, I know that um, you've been good to me in this process. And so I thank you personally. But since uh, you are who you are, I know I can also thank you for doing so many good things in the people of this room. We want your name to be lifted up this, this morning, this week throughout the Christmas holiday. We don't want it to be about anything else but who you are. So Lord, help us to live into that reality. Help us to live according to the way you've created us to live. We need your help, Lord. It's in your sons and we pray. Amen.